This podcast series will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14. Welcome to Lifeline's Holding On To Hope, a podcast series in which people who've reached a dark place in their lives share their stories. Imagine, if you will, a fine dining establishment. Quiet courtesy, calm and crisply ironed cloths. The wine is chilled and so is the atmosphere. In the kitchen, however, it's a different story, where temperatures and tempers can rise in seconds. Mal Mears has worked in some of the world's best restaurants. He knows better than most the daily scrutiny, pressure and judgement that chefs are subjected to. He's turned his experience into something very wonderful. But if it hadn't been for a crucial phone call to his best mate Nathan Dwyer, his story could have ended very differently. I grew up uh, in Caloundra on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. I had a pretty good uh, childhood, played a lot of cricket, a lot of sports, definitely did a lot of lot of schoolwork. The intention was to be a veterinarian when I left school uh, until I figured out that I couldn't actually stand the sight of uh, blood or anything and I passed, passed out, out twice, twice in the operating theatre. So when I realised that being a vet wasn't going to work out, I sort of was a bit lost for what I would do. Um, I just sort of went through the motions, finished, finished my year 12 um, and then I, I relocated to Sydney just to figure out something. And I did a TAFE course uh, for hotel school and that was where I fell into cooking. I met a chef while I was waiting to get my, my textbooks and then I started working in a, in, a, in a kitchen as a kitchen hand. The passion and everything that I found when I, when I started cooking, it was just like it was always meant to be there. I, I had <laughs> a little bit of experience with... Um, cooking when I was 10 working in my parents fish and chip shop but none of that really ever clicked it was sort of like a a memory I'd forgotten um, I was a bit put off by the um, the apprentice system initially and I didn't think that I was able to sustain a, a livelihood with the low pay that apprenticeships uh, bought but I mean that was just a couple of years of working as a kitchen hand before I really got bitten by the bug and bit the bullet and took on an apprenticeship and then, you know, started me onto the path where I am now. I've worked at El Galozo, Cruz Bar, Pendolino, Bistro Guillaume, The Square, the Bella Luz Hotel, Trocadero. As a new person going into an industry um, where you're, you're always learning and it's ever-evolving and there's always new things happening somewhere, you just you don't even know where to start. It's, it's one thing to be taught how to to prep something or, you know, to cut a carrot a certain way, but there's so many little things that you you don't really get told. There's so many things around you. There's, you know, there's hot and there's sharp and there's there's all these elements that it's sort of, you know, as a 17, 18-year-old kid, sometimes people are starting apprenticeships younger, that you just, you don't even know how to hold yourself, let alone be concerned about the, the quail that's been in, in for 20 minutes and, you you know, you've got to check because you're worried about, you know, cutting your carrots and the onions on the stove. It's just, it's a multiple, like, tasking thing as well. There's so much that you have to be able to manage all at once. And, you know, for for someone who's green, it can be very tricky. I'd left from a little town. I'd moved to Sydney. You know, I had 
a few new friends, but not that many. No real family, like, you know, I'd call mum and dad once a week just to touch in. And yeah, you know, the, the learning curve of how to hold yourself in a kitchen was pretty, pretty steep. Not to mention, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to actually be an adult. Well, I probably didn't do that for another, at least another five years anyway. Um, it was just sort of, you know, being, being away from home, you know, no real rules to follow other than making sure that my bills were paid. I didn't really know what I was dealing with. I just sort of took took everything as it comes and made decisions as they were as they were happening. I never really planned for anything. You know, just sort of tried to make the best of what I could. Starting in the kitchen, generally, you know, you look at starting at, at 9am. Um, you're in there prepping for lunch service. So you've got a three-hour window to get everything ready for lunch, possibly doing, you know, 120 covers for lunch. And then by the time lunchtime service winds up you know you could be looking at 2.30, 3.30 um, and then you've got that window until 6 o'clock when you've got to get the rest of the mise en place done which is uh, a chef term for, for your prep, everything in its place um, and then you know you're doing it all again and then depending on how, the size of the venue, um, what you're doing how long it takes it to clean down, how intense the clean down is. You know, you could be getting out between 11.30 and 1 o'clock in the morning. Those hours were a lot longer in London. You know, getting to work at like 10 to 7 and then leaving most of the time at 12.30, 1 o'clock just to get the train, uh, get the tube home and then you're, you're home for probably three, three hours and then up again to go again. But, you know, that was the expectation of a working week for a chef. So I basically lived and breathed and well, ate, drank, did all of those things. It was just all cooking. You know, I was told that you need, you know, two Bs when you're an apprentice to learn more about cooking, and that's beers and books, to have as many beers with your friends, uh, you know, to talk cooking and then read as many cookbooks as you could. So over my career, I've been lucky enough to, you know, travel the world and gain experiences and skills a, a bit of everywhere. So I started my apprenticeship in Sydney at a little trattoria in Haberfield called El Galozzo, which was really great for learning the basics of Italian cooking, which, which was my passion for probably the first four years, five years of my, um, my career. And then from there, I moved briefly to um, Cruise Bar on the Sydney Opera House and then to Pendolino, which was... At the time, you know, the best new restaurant, best new Italian, um, really doing groundbreaking things uh, with fresh pasta and all that sort of stuff. Still a leader um, in that field. And then from there, I, f- I finished up my apprenticeship and I um, was offered a job in Melbourne. And then I was there for probably just over a year um, before I took the leap and did what most Australian chefs do and went to London. Yeah, it was a good time, but just the the kitchen I found myself in um, was the one that sort of all the guys who were idolised here in the industry had done their time at, um, and it was one of those military-style kitchens, sort of yelling, got the best out of everyone, they broke you down and then, you know, they, they completely break you down and they might put you half back together and then they break you down again and then I just started hating cooking. The day I cut my cut my hand, I've still got like the the scar there where it didn't heal properly. I came in an hour later than what I was supposed to, 
but I wasn't really supposed to technically start for two or three hours. But just everyone came in early because that's what needed to be done. And I was so exhausted that I slept in another hour and I got to work an hour late. And somebody had taken my peeled presentation shallots, like talking like perfectly peeled and turned down, you know, 150 of these little onions and chopped them up for sauce. When like I confronted them about it, they're like, no, 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 like you should, like, you know, if you were here earlier, you'd, you would have had your shallots in like, as if like it was my fault so then obviously being behind the eight ball I've brand new turning knife like trying to peel artichokes obviously no one wanted to help either because you know I decided that I didn't need to come in at the same time as everyone else and I'd cut myself like pretty much to the to the bone and then just you know bit of masking tape put a glove on and carried on with it peeled to you know get ready for a Saturday night service The whole moving around thing with of my career I had a lot of positives, but also the the negative I guess from taking from that was that I never really settled myself, never allowed myself to get really a good body of of friends after that initial high school period when you know I left home i just I just start getting you know a good support group around me again and then i'd I'd move you know to another state or to another part of the world. You know, I'd start from scratch again, you know, trying to trying to fit in with new groups of friends, you know, in new workplaces, you know, often with different different demographics. It was just before I'd I'd finished my apprenticeship, you know, I was lucky enough to be going home regularly because I had braces and I had to see my dentist. Um, but it was also really hard to see my family start to fall apart. You know, you're you're not there at all really and then every six to eight weeks you have to go home and you sort of you just see the distance I guess grow between your mum and your dad and then um it was I think uh I feel like it was around my 23rd or my 24th birthday um I'd gone home for the weekend I'd perfectly timed a uh, dentist appointment so I was (laughs) home for my birthday and um I guess that was that was the point at which I I knew I could see that it was that it was over and it was yeah it was really it's quite quite distressing to see my family completely break down in front of me but it was also that realization that it was actually happening um and then to see my dad who I'd never seen cry in my life um so vulnerable um it was quite hard um so yeah, like that was, you know, a big, a big, I don't know, I guess it was a big thing to happen, you know, and then having to to fly home, you know, 24 hours after that um, and not be able to stay was was pretty hard. Um, and then, you know, a week later, my little sister ran away from home. And yeah, my anxiety was pretty out of control. Um, I was, you know, in a new job um, doing like a new cuisine so it was like a really really steep learning curve it was a great environment but yeah just the the steepness of the learning curve like it was french cooking very old school very classical everything in pans it was very hot like i remember having to memorize the doctors as they were coming in and talking about four different steaks the cuisons 
So you know you've got five times five different mul multiplications of things that you have to remember off the top of your head, and you're doing you know 100 covers. So there was a lot of like nervousness, a lot of I, like I've burnt myself really bad, like not paying attention. You know, I'd spend Friday, Saturday uh, night before a busy service. I'd have to go to the bathroom. And I'd be physically ill just due to that anxiety. So it was at that point I sort of realised that like, that anxiety would lead to to anger. And it was sort of unlocking a side to me that I didn't really like. And then I was also heavily leading into like the drinking side of things. And it just, I just didn't, it was, it was ruining my career. I could see the see the start of it, so I went to um, went to a doctor to say, you know, like this is the problem that I'm having, like you know, and then to to that it was, you know, you need to exercise more, stop drinking coffee, like don't drink any alcohol, um, you know, if you're taking drugs, don't take drugs either. Like now, I don't see them as that unrealistic, but to tell you know a twenty something year old who's working, you know, nine a.m. till midnight most days of the week um that he needs to exercise more when you know you're on your on your feet for 15 hours a day um i know it's not exercise but it's it certainly doesn't make it easy to go for a 5k run after and like you know not to drink coffee it's just like well could tell you where that opinion went <laughs> straight straight, yeah, straight out the back door or the other option was just to medicate myself and um i wasn't i wasn't willing to do that at all so I did try and exercise a little bit, but I couldn't couldn't give up like coffee or anything like that because it just you know for for me that was my only way of surviving a, a fifteen hour day. Until about six years ago, I still didn't really have any sort of balance in my life. I was still trying to throw it, you know the kitchen sink at cooking. It still hadn't dawned on me that I needed to to have some sort of release outside of that. And it, I guess it all came to a head when I taking a job after finishing up like quite a good job feeling a little bit lost and it turned out that it was just sort of all you know when someone tells you what you want to hear and they don't really want to deliver on it they just want they just needed somebody that they thought they could fill the shoes that they needed filling so you know I, I was in a job that wasn't really that great for me my relationship had been on and off for the better part of you know I think four or five years so I had this perfect storm of, of all the, the wrong things sort of not going right in my life. You know, the, the, the thing that I, you know, loved the most and the thing that I thought was going to, I was just going to throw everything at wasn't going well for me. You know, I started hating cooking and then my home life wasn't that great either. So, you know, it just led me to, you know, drinking more and, you know, resorting to drugs to sort of find this release and then you know it all sort of came to a head and became too much one day and I just you know I had that that I think it's I, I sort of visualize it as this this you know this small window where everything aligns and your brain tells you that it's the right thing to do and I mean that five minute period felt like hours and I just yeah <laughs> I was just, yeah, sitting there contemplating everything and I was lucky that when I picked up the phone that day to call my best friend that he answered. Nathan speaking. Um, hey, how are you? And, yeah, I, I guess, I, you know, had he not answered, I, I don't know where I would be right now. 
it was about five o'clock in the morning. Um, I generally don't even keep my phone on, so for some reason it was on. But um, yeah, he, he called. No, I really had no idea. Um, generally, he kept kept his cards pretty close, I guess, which I assume most people do, um, especially I guess males. We don't like talking about that sort of stuff. But no, not until um, until everything I guess unfolded. That's what I found out. I don't know. I think I just just told him, you know, that I was, you know, lost for for what, you know, was going on, and, um, that I didn't know what I was what I was living for, and that I just wanted to end it. I was sort of just basically trying to calm him down. Um, he was pretty wound up, as you can imagine. Um, and just everything sort of snowballed, I guess. So I was just talking about how, how we all would miss him and how important he is to everyone and all the good things he's done and it's not that bad. Like, he's got a pretty pretty awesome life. Um, I didn't realise how, how tough his life had been until he sort of opened up. But, um, yeah, I think just being away from friends and, and family and he was doing stupid, stupid hours at work, like insane amounts of, of work. Um, to hear his, um, you know, him talking back to me, I guess that was enough. I can't imagine he knew what was on the other end of the line. Um, and it's, yeah, sort of, I think I just just asked if I was going crazy or not, <laughs> I guess, because I, I guess I just needed someone to tell me that I shouldn't do it. I think that's probably what, what led to it all, but work-life balance and and then being away from everyone, moving away from Brisbane, there wasn't a lot of um, people to talk to, I guess. So we just kept, um, yeah, I just spoke to him as long as I could and calmed him down and, yeah, sort of, you know, I guess that's why he's here, I guess. But, um, yeah, I didn't really know what to say at the time, but not, not a common phone call you get, so, yeah. No one should ever have to face their darkest moments alone. Lifeline is here to help. Please call 13 11 14 or visit lifeline.org.au. My best friend called my dad and told him what had happened. I was on a plane later that day um, home just to, you know, sort of be around my, um, my support group, you know, for a good chunk of time just to sort of get myself back on the earth, I guess. So I went to a doctor. This time I accepted taking medication and it's different for everyone and it doesn't always work. But for me that time, in unison with seeing a psychologist, I found that that path worked for me at that, at that stage. It was very liberating to be able to talk once, once every couple of weeks initially with someone who was completely free from my daily life. Yeah, just to speak to somebody who didn't know me at all, who just listened, did so much good for like my psyche to be able to, you know, talk about my feelings and not have to worry about what the person on the other end um, was thinking and just the fact that they were there for support. Mal was advised he needed a hobby, a distraction from work, and to his surprise, he discovered another passion, ceramics. He now makes plates so beautiful, he serves his food on them. The whole ceramic sort of thing started a road where I would 
contemplate not drinking and not like medicating myself in that capacity because I wanted to be alert and I wanted to be creative. And I, I knew that if I did that, then the next day I would probably spend most of the day in bed hungover. Or, and it, that led to me feeling de- more depressed because I'd wasted an opportunity to be creative. And that sort of was an unconscious sort of like decision. And now I realise that like how beneficial it was. Just getting dirty and muddy and like covered in clay was just so therapeutic. And it took me away from cooking a little bit. It gave me that that chance to you know throw some, throw my eggs in another basket. And then whenever you know if I had a shitty day at work or whatever you know, and I was able to go to pottery the next chance I got, then it sort of was a, the ability to let the the, the foot off the the gas and like relieve some some built-up pressure. Mal decided to use his experience to help others like him, launching Food for Thought, a campaign to improve working conditions in the restaurant industry. He was supported by new girlfriend, wine expert and yoga teacher Kate Christensen. That reaching out for help, I think, started a chain reaction of me getting help, you know, on reflection that since that point and then when I started to talk more about it, it just... It freed me more of that shackle um, and gave me more strength to be able to to tell my story more often. Um, and, you know, there's probably not many people that don't know now, but certainly over like the second and third years of Food for Thought, people were sort of wondering what the hell I was doing um, and why I was throwing so much energy behind uh, Food for Thought and, you know, what what the reasoning was behind it. So Malcolm and I met when we were working at Tonka. He was the new chef on the block and of course it takes a little time for everyone to scope out the new kid on the block. I wanted to learn more about food from him and he was into foraging and I really found that um, fascinating. I wanted to learn more about that and then he showed signs of particularly Riesling wanting to know more about wine. So I think it was even just before we started dating and those sort of flirting stages, um, trying to impress each other, he said, look, I'm doing a dinner. It's for mental health awareness and I'd really love you to come along. And I said, yeah, of course, let's get a couple of work people together. We'd love to show your support. Um, And me being the wine snob that I am, asked, so what wines will be on offer? And he showed me the offering. And at that stage, his focus was definitely more on the food, outstanding food, but the wine was lacking a bit in that department. And I said, oh, would it be okay if I brought my own wines? And I don't think he was offended by that at all. I think um, it was perhaps the little nudge that he needed in that direction to realise, oh, there's more than just chefs in this. There's a whole industry and there's a whole contributing platform uh, of what we can offer um, for these dinners. So we, as a group, there was about five or six of us, came to his um, dinner at the Beer Deluxe venue and I was really impressed and I was... That was the first time, I think one of the first times that he actually shared to the event, to the audience, his personal story. So I was able to to hear that firsthand. Well, I guess um, for me, I fell into cooking like a lot of people. And one of the things that, like, where I went wrong, I sort of did what most people, a lot of people do. And I turned to alcohol um, and then that can lead to drug use. Um, It did with me and I'm not afraid to say that. And that was sort of my way of dealing with it. And then for for years it was like really bad anxiety and all that sort of stuff. It sort of spiraled out of control until I hit a really bad point six years ago. And that's where, when I did reach out, 
to say goodbye, I realised how much support I really had. And I was really lucky that my friend answered the phone that, that morning. Because, um, yeah, I might not be here now. And so I felt like he felt comfortable as well to bear his vulnerabilities and his sides. So I think really early on I was quite aware that this was something that came with him and that was part of him, but I think that didn't change anything for me. In fact, it made me feel like his endearing personality and what he was trying to do from those low, low points in his life by helping other people through this dinner and me being exposed to that very early on was... Um, really quite remarkable. Food for Thought came, came about as a way of A, creating a conversation, B, sort of highlighting the fact that there was an issue in our industry especially, but just generally that no one was speaking about this thing that was killing eight people a day, that, was, that affects millions and millions of people. Um, we wanted to do something where we could raise awareness, you know, to the hotlines, the helplines, um, and the fact that there's so many people that are going through the same thing um, and that it is okay to speak about it. And especially in hospitality, it's a sort of, you know, a get on with it attitude, you know, where if you, if you don't need to go to hospital then you just, like, you push on, you put a, you tape your hand up or, like, I worked with a broken hand for three weeks before I went to the hospital. Like, it's just that sort of thing. If you're not dying, like, you just get on with it. So it was, it was really about articulating that, it's okay to not be okay and that you're not the only one going through it. You can give hope. Donate to Lifeline today at lifeline.org.au. The general thing for a Food for Thought event is depending whether or not it's a canapé party or a sit-down dinner. Initially it was bringing together young industry professionals that were on the up um, and really focusing on what a group of of individuals could bring together and fighting a cause that was bigger than any of us. But now we sort of realised that was pigeonholing it. And because there's such, like, you know, mental health doesn't discriminate, it was silly for us to just try and do it on our own. And by harnessing the industry as a whole now, Food for Thought aims to show support throughout the industry, you know, from the big head chefs, you know, the best restaurants in Sydney, you know, down to, like, you know, a sous chef and, and below that, you know. All of them become affected by mental health. Like they either know somebody or they might be going through it themselves. So we thought it's about realistically showing, you know, a united front. So the kitchen hierarchy 10 odd years ago, it was directly run by the head chef. You did what you were told and that was it. And if you didn't like it, then you sort of were on your way. That sort of mentality has definitely changed. You know, you actively need to be looking after your staff to, to be able to keep them. Whether or not that's um, providing the right environment um, for them so they feel safe, inspired and educated. Or it can just be, you know, the work-life balance. You know, it's so important for chefs to be able to have, or for anyone really, to have that work-life balance because you'll get so much more out of your chefs or your staff by just, you know, providing them the opportunity to be able to disconnect from whatever it is that they need to do day to day. They'll be fresher and then more, more vitalised when they, when they come to work. I guess with my chefs, you know, as well as encouraging them, you know, not to be in at work when they don't have to be, seeking hobbies, doing all that sort of thing, I guess another thing that I was lucky enough to learn from my partner is the ability to take them out of a situation and sort of calm them down. And one of the ways that we do that is a circulatory breathing ex- exercise. Breathing exercises are thousands of years old. It's getting more oxygen to your cells. 
more life into your cells. I find all I have to do is consciously bring um, my awareness or my attention to my breath and it changes my tone completely. Whether I'm in a situation where I feel like it's getting beyond, it's getting beyond me or I can't control it or even the want to try and control it. By simply bringing my attention to that breath is where the weight and the wisdom of that lies. There's many different breathing exercises that you can learn through studies of yoga and that can be practically so beneficial. But just the simple, and I find the simplest one is putting your hands on your belly and just breathing in for four counts and slightly pausing at the top of the breath and then exhaling for four counts. And just that awareness that that brings to that space and that oxygen that that revitalises into your body and to your cells can completely disperse any anxiety or can completely change the tone of the situation or the mind uh, set that you're in. You know, if I notice that someone's having, you know, a really anxious time or they're having, you know, compounding mistakes, then it's just sitting down and just simply breathing with them, you know, and I'll do it with them and count them out. We do the circulatory exercise where we, you know, we'll start at four and then we'll breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds and then out for four seconds. And depending on where we're at, we'll take that anywhere from four to eight, uh, even up to 12 sometimes, and then just sort of sit and then just talk. And generally by the time that has exercise is finished, I find that that change in that person has sort of completely like re-centered them and put them back in their body and they're not really thinking in that emotional state anymore. And then they're able to go back and sort of just work themselves back into their day. And that has been a really um, powerful tool to help, you know, someone who's might be dealing with something at home um, to somebody who's just having absolute stinker. I guess the biggest thing to to consider if if you're worried about somebody, you need to make sure that a you you know you've got to ask the question, but then you've also you know you've got to listen to what that person has to say. Um, you have to figure out a way of approaching the situation where you're gonna you know you've got to consider their comfort comfortability and you've got to provide them with support. And I guess the hardest thing to do and it's human nature, is just to immediately problem solve. You need to be there and listen and be present with that person because if they do say that they're not okay, you just need to be able to listen and sort of repeat back to them. That way they have a feeling of, of like that you're actually taking on board what they're saying. And then I guess the, the most crucial step to that is that you have to encourage them to get help. Now, whether or not that's what my friend did and uh, reaching out to family members, you know, advising them to go see see their doctor, or getting to speak to a counsellor, whatever it is, you need to sort of make sure that person gets that support. And then obviously, like, well, it's, it's not that obvious. You need to make sure that you follow up with that person later on down the track because there's no point asking the question, getting them help and everything, and then not checking back in with them. Uh, well, he's completely open about everything now, which is awesome. It's obviously that's helped with everything. Um, yeah, friendships, I guess, as strong as ever. Every time we catch up, as, as you have with best mates, it sort of just connects straight away again, and it's like it was yesterday's song. So, yeah, as strong as ever, I guess. His friend picked up that day for a reason, and now that was the knock-on effect of the good work that he's doing now. So had that opportunity not been able to come into fruition, it would have been, I would have, yeah, it would have been very sad. Um, the four important things to consider are to ask the question, listen without trying to fix them, um, encourage them to get help, and then check in and make sure that they're okay. Thank you for listening to Holding On To Hope. 
Lifeline Australia is grateful to all our interviewees who share their stories in the hope of inspiring others. We also acknowledge all of you who provide support to people in crisis and those on their journey to recovery. If you found this podcast helpful or inspiring, please share it, rate it, write a review or subscribe wherever you download your favourite podcasts. If this story has affected you and you require crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can do this at any time or visit lifeline.org.au to access web chat every night from 7pm to midnight. If it's inspired you to be a Lifeline volunteer or to donate, please visit lifeline.org.au. With thanks to Wahoo Creative for interviews, editing and production and the voice of lived experience, which is essential in the development of our work.